Well, the rest of us will continue in Matthew chapter 22 this morning. And Matthew 22 records three conversations that take place during the final week of Jesus' life. And the heat is turned up and the conflict has escalated between him and the religious leaders. And if you recall last week, uh, the Pharisees teamed up together with the Herodians to come to Jesus with a challenge, really a test to try to get him sideways with Rome so that they could be done with him. And Jesus, instead of getting tangled up in that conflict, managed to raise the stakes across the board, uh, saying, yes, you must pay your taxes to Rome, but moreover, you must offer your bodies, your whole selves as image bearers of God to God. And now this week, the Sadducees, another group of religious leaders, try their hand to trap Jesus because he is likewise positioned against them. But they're not exactly the sharpest knives in the drawer. They're not here trying to get Jesus to tangle with Rome. They're here trying to get Jesus to tangle with Moses. And then, if they could do that, they would have adequate grounds to dismiss him. Now, the bone that they pick with Jesus this morning is regarding the resurrection. Okay? And and they are what they showed... Let's just say they showed up to a gunfight with, with a toothbrush. Okay, they're, they are punching way out of their league right now. Um, and Jesus will be with them very clear this morning. There is a resurrection. And the former way of life will be made new. So turn in your Bibles with me to the second of these three traps laid for Jesus by the religious leaders, to Matthew chapter 22, and follow along as I begin reading in verse 23. And along the way, really, we'll hang our hats on a couple of movements. You'll see that the trap itself is absurd. And then you'll see that Jesus' response is acute. And then the implications are astonishing, okay? So we'll just hang our hats there along the way. But begin with me here as we consider the trap in verse 23. The same day, Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said, If a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no children, left his wife to his brother. So too, the second and the third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. There's the trap. And we're all scratching our heads together. What is so trappy about that? It's a little bit absurd, right? That that might be the right words, kind of an unbelievable, inconceivable scenario that these leaders present. And we need to start by asking ourselves the question, who are the Sadducees? Okay, why is this the issue that they pick? The Sadducees are really, they're, they're relatively new characters in the story, as Matthew's been telling. They've been mentioned five times in Matthew's gospel to date, and each of those five times they are riding the coattails of the Pharisees. 
And technically, they're doing that right now, but now they get their little moment of action on the stage, and they ask this question. Now, the, the Sadducees are more closely aligned with Rome, who was, um, had authority or jurisdiction in Israel at the time, than the Pharisees were. Um, and they were really actually quite opposed to each other, those two religious groups, the Pharisees and Sadducees, until they had a mutual enemy in John the Baptist and Jesus of Nazareth who came announcing a kingdom of heaven that had come. And while the Pharisees were the legal experts of the law, they would enforce and uphold the law, uh, the, the Sadducees were much more conservative. And they really rejected the Pharisees on the grounds that they rejected their human tradition. In fact, they were so conservative that they saw all but the first five books of the Bible as human tradition, as, as human explanation of Moses' holy writing, the Pentateuch. And so their Bible was very small. It consisted of five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the books of Moses. Now, one major theme of the Jewish faith of the Christian faith even, that was so covert that it was overt in those first five books is the reality of an afterlife or of a resurrection. You don't see it on every page. The implications of it are not on every page. And so these religious leaders, the Sadducees, then were a sect of, of priests in Israel who did not believe a resurrection existed. They were nihilists, which means that when the body dies, the body dies and the soul dies with it. When we die, we cease to exist, is what they believed. And now we understand why they were sad, you see. So why do they have a bee in their bonnet about Jesus then? Okay, What's the big deal? So what if there is a resurrection? I mean, on the one hand, they could have a big bee in their bonnet because uh, they had just seen their rivals, the Pharisees, get uh, basically befuddled by Jesus, silenced by Jesus, and they think, here's our chance to kind of show ourselves, show our own strength as we compete with them. So they're going to duel with Jesus and duel with their rivals at the same time. But on the other hand, really, the more likely option is that Jesus was a direct threat to them in their nihilistic framework. When Jesus came announcing the way of the kingdom, he, he, he came announcing a new way to be human that did not end in death. Now that's the, the opening words of the gospel. The, the, the proclamation at the start is repent, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now why would you care to repent if you're just going to end up dead like everybody else at the end? The announcement of John the Baptist and of Jesus to this point has implied that there is something more, has implied that there is life after death. But more directly, Jesus came teaching and came announcing that those who were persecuted would have a great reward in heaven, calling everyone to lay up treasure for themselves in heaven, foretelling his own resurrection, and even raising up as a signal, Jairus' daughter and his friend Lazarus from the dead. 
And if there is, in fact, a resurrection from the dead, as Jesus has indicated, then the ultimate conclusion, the underlying assumption that the Pharisees and their teaching are invalidated. So Jesus is a threat to them. His teaching and his ministry are subversive to theirs. The crowd that follow him do not submit now to the Sadducees. And they would do just as well to be rid of him. So they try their hand at trapping him by pitting him against Moses. And so they quote Moses to him. Teacher, they say. Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Everybody knows that, right? Yeah. Now, this is a quotation from the law of Moses in Deuteronomy 25, where instructions are given for what is called leveret marriage. Now, you don't need to know very much about leveret marriage, believe me, but what you do need to know is that uh, leveret marriage was a law designed for human flourishing where the honor of, of, of the parents, of the man and the woman, would be upheld through their offspring and the inheritance, the protection of the child or the family would be upheld through this law as well. The leveret marriage laws were required in the gospel of, or the gospel, the book of Ruth. Uh, that is the law that is exercised when Boaz comes to marry Ruth and consequently is required, exercised in the genealogy of Jesus. So the law was a gift to God's people in particular because it elevated um, women far above the treatment that they would receive in neighboring uh, pagan nations. And it is regarding then this law that the Sadducees have developed maybe a quip, maybe a, a, a foible, maybe a quandary, a, a con contrived dilemma that would basically, they would use to describe and prove the incredulity of a resurrection at all. And that dilemma goes something like this. Now, there were seven brothers. And it unfolds. And thus, they present their quandary to Jesus. Because in their way of thinking, there's no way that it would be okay for one woman to have seven husbands. And therefore, in their framework, there was no way that there could be a resurrection and Moses be true because of this quandary, this scenario. And so what could the resurrection be in their mind other than a continuation of things the way that it has been, perhaps into eternity, perhaps blissfully, and so if the words of Moses are true, that this is the law and it is good, and this scenario were to be real, then there could not be a resurrection. It wouldn't work. So either Moses is right and a resurrection is an absurdity, or Jesus is right. And there is a resurrection. But in the Sadducees' eyes, both cannot be right. And so here's the trap. If Moses was wrong, if Jesus says Moses was wrong, he didn't know what he was talking about, kill him. Moses is like the pillar of the Jewish faith. And if Jesus says, you're right, I'm, I'm wrong, I messed up, there is no resurrection. Moses was right, your, your scenario is valid. Then, then 
Why would you bother to follow him? And so, either way, they could undercut him. Now, pay special attention to what Jesus says. His response to their quandary is acute. Now, I don't know how you would exactly respond to it, but here's how Jesus responds to it. In verse 29, Jesus answered them, You are wrong, because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. Now you notice what he says. He does not say Moses was wrong. And he does not say I am wrong. He says you are wrong. Your foible is wrong. Your premise is wrong. Your scenario is wrong. I love it. And it doesn't answer the question at all. It's just like, you're wrong. But in that, he is upholding Moses as right and himself as right. And he is now going to reveal that the resurrection operates on a different plane a different paradigm. And he turns the issue back on them and he says, you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. The fundamental problem with this foible, the fundamental problem with these Sadducees is that they do not regard the scriptures nor the God revealed in the scriptures. And I would love to say that that is not a common scenario that people would not regard the Scriptures and would not regard the God of the Scriptures. But this is not an isolated incident. These Sadducees aren't really that, that far-fetched. You know, as though they're the only guys who dogmatically form incomplete and ignorant conclusions. We do the same thing and make the same error. In fact, we, we do this about the same issue, about the resurrection, about the afterlife. And there are, uh, there's a trilogy by Dante, the Inferno, the Paradiso, and Purgatorio, that inform our understanding of an afterlife more than, I would suggest, more than the words of God where there is a layers to hell and layers to heaven, and the better you are, the, the further you go, or the worse you are, the further you go. And our, our understanding of this, this issue even is, is uh, limited because we do not know the Scriptures and we do not know the power of God revealed in the Scriptures. No, the Word is the thing that reveals the power of God. If we knew the Word, we would know the power of God. And so we're committed. I'm committed to leading you to be a Word-centered people. Like if we're going to bet the farm on anything, we're going to bet the farm on the Word. That it will, it will show us who God is and we will live rightly in light of it. And so um, it is the thing that is open right now. I hope it's open on your lap right now. 
I hope that you're reading through the New Testament this year. I hope that you're a part of one of the men's or women's Bible studies. I hope that your life group is opening the word. This is something that we're committed to so that we do not have this word spoken against us by Jesus. You do not know the scriptures and you do not know the power of God. Now, they don't understand God because they don't understand the word. And Jesus unpacks that a bit further as he continues in his response. He begins by expounding on the power of God, which ensures a resurrection. In verse 30, he says, For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Now, the first thing you need to notice is that Jesus assumes a resurrection. He assumes a general bodily resurrection. And in John 5, presumably earlier in his life, uh, he is not referring to a one-off resurrection as though this, uh, this Lazarus or Jairus daughter moment. Um, he, is giving a, uh, he is referring to the day when all who have died will rise in their bodies, some to eternal life and some to eternal judgment. But Jesus isn't giving an apologetic here for a general resurrection, and we'll see why in just a moment. But the second thing that you need to notice here is that in this resurrected state, humans will neither marry nor be given in marriage. And I will add that in this sense, they are like angels in heaven. What do you think of that? I'll admit, my imagination is too small to even think of it. Some of you are single right now, and maybe that makes you happy. It gives you some relief that you wouldn't be alone in heaven, that everyone would understand you. Maybe you're rejoicing that your relationship status will be common. Some of you are maybe unhappily married, and and you're relieved that that's the reality. Others of you may be very happily married, as I am, and you couldn't imagine that there would be any greater joy in a resurrection than being married to your spouse. So how could this be? Is the resurrection bad? Or is there something else happening here? How does this then, okay, here's my question, how does this correspond to the power of God? Okay, follow, follow me here. Uh, there is some, um, and you hear it all the time, there is some cheap news that you hear all the time. That if you're single, being married will make you happy. That if you're married, that having children will make you happy. That your happiness will be derived, your worth will be defined by the relationships around you. And they call it cheap news. The, the best thing it promises is that um, its, it's understanding of what eternal life or the afterlife would look like is, oh, you, you, you now have a legacy. You were loved and you loved and you have a legacy. It's about as good as it can promise. The good news, on the other hand, that God is offering by virtue of his power is entirely countercultural. While marriage is a good gift and children are a good gift, 
They will bring you merely a shadow, a sign, a foretaste of the fullness of joy that you will experience in God's presence forever. The good news is that you could never be satisfied by your marriage. You will never be satisfied by your children. The deepest, most uh, central, weightiest longing in your heart, in your life, will only and exclusively be satisfied by the presence of God and the resurrection guarantees that you will have the presence of God. So here's the point. The power of God can take the very best thing you might experience in life and elevate it to such heights that that thing is no longer needed. Now this is like a child, okay, being told, you're going to fly on an airplane. And the child gets on the airplane, and and they're so enraptured with this flight. This is the moment they've been waiting for. And uh, when they hear the parents say, do you know where we're going? The child's like, they've got adjustable vents. And the parent says, we're going to Disneyland. And the child's like, did you know there's peanuts? on this plane? No matter how much the parent pleads or convinces the reasons, the greatest joy the child's ever known is the adjustable vent and the peanuts on the plane. And so the child just simply doesn't have a category for the kind of joy that will be experienced when they land in L.A. Now, it is in a similar sense then that the resurrection, that in the resurrection, the power of God elevates the human joy and delight beyond what may even be the greatest joy or delight on earth. We do not have a category for the joy that awaits us in the resurrection. Because you see, we may see this world a little bit like the Sadducees see this world, flatly on a horizontal plane that what humans have been doing for millennia before us, they will continue to do millennia from now, and when we die, we will continue to do those things, and and it will just be without pain and sorrow and sadness, forever. Flat earthers, per se. But we can really only extrapolate what we know from our own experience. And so perhaps we view the resurrection not dissimilarly, uh, flatly. As though we're going to have the same, like live in the same house with the same address, but it's going to be perfect. The roof won't leak. We'll have the same garden, but there won't be weeds. We'll have the same spouse, but there won't be conflict. We'll have the same kids, but we won't need a discipline. Everything will continue as it goes. This is how the Sadducees viewed the resurrection, and that's why they thought it was incredulous. But when confronted by the power of God, we must acknowledge that the resurrected life may very well be elevated to a different plane altogether. What do I mean by that? What does that new plane look like? Will we have bodies in the resurrection? Yes. That's the argument that Paul makes in 1 Corinthians 15. But those bodies will be new, on a different plane, insusceptible to corruption. Will we recognize each other? 
Well, yes, Luke 16 is our, uh, a demonstration of that. But will we be married or marry in heaven? Apparently not. I would love to say it makes great sense to me. And I can't say that. It is in this sense, then, that we'll be like angels. Not in every sense. We're not, we don't become angels. We're, we're humans with a body. But in this sense, we're like angels. The temporal, earthly traditions and forms are fulfilled and replaced by a better form. They're replaced by the point of it all. The point of the airplane trip is not the airplane trip. The point is the destination. And it is in this sense that when we enter then this resurrection, the first thing and the, the thing that we know the most about in this resurrection is a wedding feast. But it's not your wedding feast or my wedding feast, per se. It's Jesus' wedding. And to this point, then, every marriage has been pointing forward to a day when the second member of the Trinity, the Son, will be married finally with His bride, the church. And so we come to that wedding feast. Now, this, this separate plane idea or this fulfillment idea corresponds to the power of God because it corresponds to the assumption that Jesus makes here that there is a resurrection requires no small amount of power. That all dead bodies would be raised up. That the, the former way of things would be made new. Now, Uncle Rico in Napoleon Dynamite, he makes some hollow boasts. You remember that he believes that he could throw this dare football over that damn mountains. Now, these are not hollow, empty promises made by hollow, empty person with inconsequential gravitas. No, no, no. The God who created the heavens and the earth is speaking. And even as Jesus speaks, he is the one who is upholding the universe by his word of power. And he's announcing that he's going to do it again. And that those resurrected will live in a new world. So the Sadducees, they don't get God. They don't get this understanding of God. They see things flatly. Their understanding of Him is far too small. The power of God en enables a resurrection. It ensures a resurrection. But in their little Bible, comprised of Genesis through Deuteronomy, how would they have known? I mean, a general resurrection like this is not really mentioned in those first five books. I, I said it was so covert it was overt. Like it's a glaring, uh, a glaring absence. And yet even there, apparently God has revealed his power to them because Jesus says the words, do you, you do not know the word of God. Now Jesus can make that indictment because in the scriptures there is a resurrection. So when Jesus attacks their nihilism, when he comes back at them, he quotes their Bible to them. And Chuck read it a few moments ago in Exodus chapter 3, the, this self-revelation of God to Moses from the burning bush, which says, When the Lord saw 
that he turned aside to see, God called out to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet. The place on which you are standing is holy grounded. He said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Well, now we're all convinced that there is a resurrection. <laughs> how, does this, how does this help us? It is not, this is not where I would go if I was going to open the Bible to prove the existence of a resurrection. How foolish it is to say that Jesus is pitted against Moses. And if you're like me, you're a little bit befuddled at Jesus' logic. But it seems that the thing that we as readers are supposed to notice, and the Sadducees as the audience are supposed to notice, is the tense of the verb. That is used both in Exodus 3 and in Jesus' quotation. I am. And in the Greek, this is an emphatic verb, meaning it also has the pronoun with it. Uh, Most of the time, a pronoun can be captured in the essence of the verb. So it says, I, I am. You have certainly made a mistake on your tenses before. I'm sure you've probably even heard a report from the day. Uh, Marika was so kind. And immediately, my mind, when I hear that tense, goes, did she, did she die? She was so kind? She sure was. No, she was kind of the party. Oh, oh, okay. <laughs> she is kind. She still is kind, right? And you have this reality, like um, the tense carries in it the implication that the, the past tense being verb communicates something that is stopped, was kind was the God of Abraham, was the God of Isaac, was the God of Jacob, and am no longer. But the present tense of a being verb contains in it this idea of an ongoing action. Marika is still kind. She still is. Right here, right here today, she's still kind. God is still the God of Abraham. He is the God of Isaac. He is the God of Jacob. You see, Exodus 3 is a very different tone if we read it instead. I was the God of your father. I was the God of Abraham. I was the God of Isaac. I was the God of Jacob. While these men were living, I was their God. And now they are not living and I am not their God. No, by emphasizing the present tense, Jesus is highlighting that even though the bodies of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have been in the ground for 400 years... They are, in fact, living. And God is, in a very real sense, still their God. Now, they are bodies awaiting a resurrection. And their soul is in the presence of God, rejoicing in the presence of God. And you can, you can consider really the contrast then between what Moses does in response to these words of God and what you can conclude that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would have been doing. Moses, it says in verse 6, he hid his face because he was terrified. And we can assume and assume rightly that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob did not hide their face in the presence of God, and they were not terrified in the presence of God. They were delighting with him in a plane that we cannot comprehend right now. 
their satisfaction in God heightened beyond earthly comprehension, awaiting a day when their soul and their body would again be together in the presence of God, the day of resurrection. So this is Jesus' acute response to their question. But it leaves us with a really, really big question for us. So what? Like, that's a real genuine question. So we, so we got a little smarter about the resurrection, maybe. We got a little smarter about some Sadducees today. So what? Well, the implications are astonishing. Look at verse 33. The crowd that is there, when they heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. Now, they were amazed, and they were amazed probably because they had heard this foible before, and they'd never heard anyone ever able to dismantle it like Jesus has until now. They have the same response at the end of his teaching that the crowd had when Jesus got down from the mountain after preaching the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7. So here's my question. Are you amazed? Are you astonished? Or are you kind of bummed? A little bit confused? Possibly relieved? If you know the Word of God and the power of God, you would, we would likewise be amazed. Because the resurrection that is coming is the best news that you could ever hear. And it is the best news regardless of your marital status. The best news in the whole world for single people is the resurrection. Not only will you be on par with those in the new creation, but you will finally realize to the fullest sense that marriage was never the secret to happiness. The futility and disappointment you felt in your life will be replaced with a satisfaction that words cannot describe in the presence of Jesus greater than you could ever have imagined on earth. You will realize then that you never needed to be married to experience that kind of joy. But the best news for unhappily married people is also a resurrection. Likely you've been sold that story, that marriage will bring you happiness. And every morning you wake up and you've been let down, every morning. Well, now the prospect that a resurrection will bring you real happiness, more happiness than you've ever known, all the pain, heartache, frustration that you've experienced every day will be gone for good, is good news, that you will wake up one day and that sorrow, that disappointment will turn into joy. All of your frustration will turn to a deeper delight than you could ever have known when you are with your true husband, your Savior, Jesus. But here's where I really want to direct your attention this morning. Consider that you have it as good as it could be, that you are supremely, happily married. And you and your spouse are living the very best life that you could ever have imagined. You don't fight. You're on the same page. The world, home, family you're creating is better than you could have ever hoped for. What then? Does the resurrection all of a sudden become a bummer? 
that you would no longer be married in heaven. Is that good news or bad news? Here's, I think, where Jesus is pressing. The best news for happily married people is the resurrection. Because those of you who are happily married, your marriage is designed to model something, to reveal something else. It is pointing to a greater wedding feast. The union of Christ and the church. And really to the degree that your marriage represents and points to that will be the degree to which you will know how far you are surpassed in Uh, by the presentation of the bride to her husband in that great feast. And even with the greatest experience you could possibly know on earth, your airplane peanuts will simply not compare to the joy of the destination. The real thing in the resurrection is here. And we are living in its shadow. So when the sun comes out and you see things as they really are and as they are meant to be, your heart will soar. I promise you will not be disappointed in the resurrection. Now, likewise, the best news for sick people and healthy people, for uh, courageous people and timid people, for shame-filled people and confident people is likewise the resurrection. And because now this reality is kind of otherworldly, we cannot view the world flatly, we need to acknowledge that either we are going to be found on that day of resurrection as ones who are natural in Adam or as ones who are going to follow the supernatural Christ. Either we will be natural and in Adam. We will rise then to judgment. Or we will rise as ones who are in Christ, and we will do as the hymn says, we will follow him where Christ has led. He has already risen, he has already punched a hole through death, and he is on his way leading his people to a day when they will be physically with him, and I promise you will not be disappointed in the resurrection. So there is a resurrection, period. End of discussion. You are wrong, Sadducees. But that former way of life that you are bringing into the future, that that will be made new. It will be complete. Lacking in no regard. And why is that? Because there, finally, we will be in the presence of the Lord. That's the hope of Christians today. That's the message of Jesus. That's the good news uh, of, that the world needs is that peace with God is found through Jesus and you will follow him even there. Would you pray with me as we close? Heavenly Father, our imaginations are admittedly far too small to even... We just wrestle and we go in circles over and over again. And so, Lord, even as we're... Our, our, our heads might be spinning at what that resurrection might be like or feel like or what we might hear or see or do. Lord, would you center us not on the activities of the resurrection but on the person of the resurrection? 
that our eyes would fix on the one who is and, and declares himself to be the resurrection in the life, Jesus, the one whom our eyes and attention will be glued on in amazement. So would you cause us even today to fall more in love with him? And we ask for your help in your name. Amen.